0: Well, good morning. It's uh, Mother's Day, so happy Mother's Day to you all. For uh, all those who don't know me, my name is Alan Nielsen. I'm one of the elders here at the Mission Church. It's good to be here with you today. A few weeks ago when uh, Pastor Rich was walking us through John chapter 3, he spent some time on what is arguably the most well-known and most often used Bible verse by the Christian world, John 3:16. Well today, the text that I will be preaching from is, very possibly, the number two spot. You know, there's a lot of well-loved cited verses in the Bible, and this one would definitely be included. So our text will be in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter three, verse five and six. No, nothing is more fundamental to the flourishing of human societies than trust. All governments, all economies, all money and banking institutions, all relationships between people are fundamentally grounded by trust. Without trust, society deteriorates into fear and panic. Yet today, trust is eroding at dizzying pace. Over the years, the technology innovators have and still do pitch their solutions for creating a greater trust and confidence through their inventions. One such invention was the camera, and then the moving camera, or the film. Today, we call it video. This enabled them to, as they would say, you know, catch it on film. Seeing is believing, right? This became the mantra, technology became the hero. This morning, I'm going to poke a little bit at the latest and most popular hero of technology today. That is AI, with its ever more present cohort, the Academic Chat GPT. Now, don't misunderstand me. This is not about debunking technology and the many inventions that have aided man for many generations. This is not the equivalent of the get rid of your TV sermon or ditch the computer, the smartphone, or, or even chat GPT. I'm just trying to make a point, so bear with me here. But before I go any further, let me just pause here and, and just give a very brief explanation for clarity's sake of, of what AI is, as well as chat GPT. There may be some who, here who have never heard of AI, or chat what? So very simply, AI stands for artificial intelligence, it is the software for the simulation of human-like machines. Think robots or droids. I'm sure you're all familiar with Star Wars and R2D2 and C3PO. Well back in 1977 when Star Wars when the Star Wars film came out it was it was quite a novel concept. Today, the novel concept is not on the big screen. It's, it's a technology tool called ChatGPT. It's a language processing tool driven by AI technology that allows you to have human-like conversations with a, with a chatbot via texting chat. You, know, you ask it questions, it, it gives you answers. It can write for you, correct grammar, as well as a host of other things with, with astounding competence and speed. Now, and to my point, recently I read an article where the author described ChatGP as the ultimate con man. The article went on to describe how the word con man had its origin in the term confidence man. The, the word con man later became a shortened version of confidence man. It wasn't until 1849 that they started just using con man. But it used to be he was the confidence man. The idea behind the confidence man was that he sought to win and establish trust with the people. He wanted to build confidence with you. You know, it was always the sell to obtain much with minimal effort. And after he had won your confidence, he would then implement his strategy of trying to defraud you. No, ChatGPT is wildly popular today, and people love it, and they have confidence in it. They want to use it for everything, drawing up legal documents, medical advice, term papers, resumes, and cover letters, explaining complex topics, even column writing. I dare say some are even suggesting that pastors could use it to write their sermon. Well, this is exactly what a con artist does. He gives people what they ask for. He doesn't bother about whether it's true or if it plagiarizes. Those are ethics. He isn't concerned about ethics. It's been reported that scammers are now using ChatGPT because of its proficiency in providing emails and messages with excellent grammar. In the past, it was relatively easy to identify phishing emails due to the grammatical errors. These grammatical errors, they served kind of like a red flag, enabling others to discover that the, they were phishing emails and they could see it more easily. But now, the confidence bot has given the con man confidence to help him have greater success in defrauding others. Maybe you've, maybe you've seen this on the news, but there was a recent case in Arizona that involved an AI voice cloning attempt to create a virtual kidnapping scenario. You know, the AI software, software can clone your voice within as little as three seconds of listening to your voice. and just a few seconds of you posting on social media or saying anything, the AI voice can clone your voice to say whatever it is programmed to say. Can you see how this can destroy trust and put people in a state of panic? Even the activities that are not so nefarious like writing a term paper or, or a cover letter and a resume, these activities, they can also erode general trust, causing doubt that what is being received is actually genuine. Now to finish making my point, think back on the last three years with, with COVID and the mask mandates, what was utter nonsense and foolishness? And it came from the medical field and the so-called experts crying out, trust, the science. Then the absolute madness of vaccine mandates. It wasn't science that had the problem. It was the technocrats. ChatGPT isn't the problem. Nor is the computer, the software, or the bot. The problem is sinful man behind the data input and the creation of the training, etc. it was the age-old problem of the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Trust has massively been depleted in our society and confusion is rampant. Many are beginning to ask these questions. What can be trusted? Can we even trust anything anymore? This is the plight of our society today. As Christians, though, we know what can be trusted. In fact, trust is at the very heart of the Christian faith. We trust not in the things of this world, We trust in the eternal, unchangeable Creator God, who is altogether trustworthy. He's the foundation of our faith. Everything is contingent on God. This is how we as Christians navigate in this lost and fallen world. We place our trust in Him, who is trustworthy. This morning, if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. We're in Proverbs chapter 3. We'll be looking at uh, verses 5 and 6. So Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. we be just going through these two verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. and Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come before you, you know our hearts, Lord. You know where we're at. You know all about us. And yet, Lord, we ask you to send down the Holy Spirit with us today. Please just remove the teacher today. Let the Holy Spirit teach us and shine in our lights, shine lights in our life and open our minds to see and give us eyes to see and a heart to understand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, trust in the Lord with all your heart. What does this mean? Figuratively speaking, let's just just put our face right up to the text and see if we can understand a little deeper what this actually means. In essence, it means to take him at his word, to accept his promises. It means to actually believe that what he says is true. And then, to act upon that belief. And how should we act upon that belief? Well, The text goes on to say, with all your heart. This phrase would be similar to the adjective wholeheartedly. So now let me ask you a question. What does it look like when someone does something with all their heart? Do you recall doing something with all your heart? Think about that for a minute. Isn't it obvious that you know, when we see someone do something with all their heart, it's a rather conspicuous thing to observe, isn't it? With all your heart, this phrase has implications. I've broken them down into like five parts. Will, zeal, devotion, sincerity and pleasure when you place your trust in the Lord do you do so with the will most likely as much as without the will you wouldn't even trust right what about with zeal that's a little harder sometimes our selfish desires they pinch off our zeal what about devotion This is also harder it's pretty easy to waver here, right? Again, our own selfish desires interrupts our devotion. What about sincerity? Well, this one gets us often. You see, here's, this, is, this is important. Pretense is a robber of honesty. Let me just repeat that so it will settle in. Pretense is a robber of honesty. So don't be fake. Acknowledge that you are weak if you need to. Don't fake it. Here's the last one, pleasure. We should be joyful about trusting him. It should be soul satisfying to the point of pouring over into praise. Let me give you an example of what came to my mind when I was uh, pondering this text. Do you remember the movie, Chariots of Fire? Maybe some of the younger people might not, but if you remember, the show was based on the true story of two British athletes, athletes a devout Scottish Christian named Eric Little and an English Jew named Fred Abrams. Now, Eric Little was born in China to a missionary couple from scotland he was a devout christian running in the 1924 olympics men's hundred meter track when he learned that the heats of the hundred meter race were on the lord's day he he chose not to race because of his conscience and his devotion to the lord on the lord's day now fred abrahams prior to the Olympics, had been beaten by eric and Fred took that very hard. He was determined to win at all costs in the 100-meter event. Eric, on the other hand, he was determined to honor the Lord. He refused to compete. And he came under great pressure by the Scottish nobility as well as the, the British Olympic Committee. Even the Prince of Wales, putting a lot of pressure on him. They wanted Scotland to win. They knew how fast he was. They wanted to see him win. But Eric wouldn't compromise. He wasn't running for his glory. Rather, he wanted to bring glory to God. Later, the opportunity did open up for Eric to run in the longer 400-meter race. Again, the voices were critical. Well, he's a sprinter, they said. He'll never last in the longer 400-meter race. Spoiler alert here if you haven't seen the movie. Fred Abrahams went on to take the gold in the 100 meter, but Eric went on to take the gold in the 400 meter. In fact, Eric Little broke the world record in the 400 meter, and the record remained for an additional 12 years. Now, here's the heart of the man. When Eric Little runs, he runs with all his heart. His head back, looking up at the sky, arms flailing, just his whole heart. You know, in the movie, after he accidentally misses a prayer meeting, his sister, his sister Jenny is concerned that his heart is, might not be set on, it might be set on winning and not being the missionary to the China. So he makes this, he makes this comment to his sister, to Jenny, he said, Jenny, Jenny, he says, God has made me for China, but he has also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Weal, zeal, devotion, sincerity, and pleasure. You know, there are two sides to trusting the Lord First, you must make the decision to trust based on the belief that he is reliable, that he is who he says he is, and that he will do what he says he will do. This then is the will. Then you must move that decision to an action. You must realize that this is not just mental assent. It must move to the action level. And often the example is given of a chair. If you can say, I I believe that the chair will support me if I sit in it. But until you move to action to go sit in it, it is merely a mental ascent. Now, let me just give this chair illustration some clarity. Let us suppose, let's suppose that the support that the chair sits on is not visible to us. Then let us suppose that what you can see is that if the chair does not support you, you will most assuredly fall to your death. Now, let us suppose that you have the testimony of many before you that have safely sat in the chair and testified that it it did indeed support them, just as the creator of it had assured them. Now, you can intellectually scope it out based on the evidence of past testimony from others that the chair is reliable and it did actually hold them up. Furthermore, you can go on about the beauty of the chair, you can agree with others who claim its trustworthiness. However, until you exercise the faith that will move you to action to sit in the chair and trust it, you do not believe. So trusting in the Lord is an actionable step that begins with a decision, the will. The second side of trusting in the Lord is the habit. It's the doing and then doing, and then doing. It's taken actionable steps. And over time, the confidence level begins to grow. But what is this doing about? Well, trusting in the Lord is acting by faith upon his word. James says in James 1, 22 through 24, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he was like. Is it any wonder that we struggle with trusting God? It's so easy to be a hearer and not a doer. The word says trust and we often just give mental assent and think we're trusting Then we go away and forget what we look like. Unless you get discouraged about all this trusting and doing and you're feeling like you're not even sure how to trust sometimes yourself. I'm going to read another passage of scripture that this one is very relatable to most of us. It's found in Mark chapter 9 where Jesus heals the boy with unclean spirit. Mark chapter 9 verse 20 through 24. for one who believes immediately the father of the child cried out and said i believe help my unbelief for so many of us our unbelief causes doubt and fear when your unbelief rises and fear begins to take over remember this this is this is important do not take counsel from your fear. Do not take counsel from your fear. You can repeat this as many times in your mind as you need when you're tempted. And then, and then do what David says that he does. It's really simple. Psalm 56.3. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. Brothers and sisters, trusting in the Lord is not a one time thing. It's a developed, perpetual habit. It's not about muttering mental assent, but actually, freely from your heart, giving and turning over all your troubles and your decisions to God. Now, back to the text Do not lean on your own understanding. Sinful self-sufficiency seems to be our default position. How quick we are to seek the worldly satisfaction of self-importance, uh, self-reliance. It feeds our flesh, our desire to be important, our vanity. Worse still is when we try to paint it with a top coat of righteousness. This is foolish. First Corinthians 3.19 For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Be careful not to flatter yourself into thinking too highly of your abilities. You're not as wise as you think you are. But there is one who is wise. And if you will ask him for wisdom and plead with him in faith... He says, wisdom will be given to you. James 1, 5 through 6. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all, without reproach. And it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. There's another way that we lean on our own understanding when life gets difficult, when we are overwhelmed by the unknown, or when the storms of life batter us and the pressures mount, what do we do? We busy ourselves in worry or in foolish strategizing, seeking to save face, proving to the world that we have things under control. This is also folly. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You see, our understanding is entirely insufficient. Our disposition should be one of dependence, not independence. You are not independent. You are dependent. Now, we hear all the time in our culture how important it is to be independent, the truth is, man is a contingent being. God is everything. Man is nothing. You know, I like, I like the King James translation of this next verse. It's really a, it's more poetic than some of the others. I just like the way it sounds as opposed to some of the other translations. Isaiah two, twenty two, 22. Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? Now the very first order to observe when contemplating this text is: "Stop thinking of yourself. Your breath is in your nostrils. When the text says, "Seize ye for man," well this includes the self as well as trusting in others. Let's not forget that God can also take you out anytime He chooses. He can also humble you to the dust. All the haughty ways and actions of men can be brought low rather quickly. Think about Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. At the time, Babylon was the greatest superpower of the day. And at the height of his hubris, as he was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon, he says, "'Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power?' as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? The scripture says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. Not only was his breath in his nostrils, the text says he ate grass like an ox, and his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. There's another warning. If you're looking for to your feelings for answers, you're again you are trusting man yourself. It's folly to do so. Turn to God and trust in him and his. Living word. And I like what Charles Spurgeon says on this subject. He just puts it in a way I just always appreciate. He says, care nothing for the vanity of vanities, but trust in the verity of verities. So now just a word here to anybody that's not a believer. If you are here today and you're not a believer... I just plead with you to turn to God. Today, cry out to the only one who can save you. Cry out to the Lord Jesus and repent of your sin and turn in faith to him. Place your faith and trust in him and cease from man whose breath is in his nostrils. Jesus tells us, except you become as a child, a child is helpless. The child knows he's needy. The child doesn't put on the veneer of self sufficiency as to maintain some level of respect. The child will cry out when he's in desperate need. We are weak, broken, sinful people in desperate need of God. That is our disposition. So, why then do we try to lean on our own understanding? Answer, because of pride. It is our pride that keeps us from taking refuge in the Lord. Again, Proverbs 14.12, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. It's our foolish pride in our self that ends in death. Look at Psalm 118.8, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Psalm 62, eight: trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Can you see the foolishness of leaning on your own understanding? God is faithful. When, when, I, when I think of the faithfulness of God, I'm, I'm just reminded of some of the lyrics of this song. We sing it here often. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Again, Spurgeon, he said this, Let us lean on God with all our weight. Let us throw ourselves on His faithfulness as we do on our beds, bringing all our weariness to His dear rest. The Bible preemptively points us in the direction that we should go. You know, it does anticipate the storms in life, as well as our many failures and sins, that undoubtedly will surely come. So when our failures and the consequences of our sins become front and center in our lives, remember that God has provided for us the antidote to cover all our sins and invites us to draw near and receive grace and mercy. Hebrews four sixteen. Let us then with confidence... Draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Also, Lamentations 3, 21 through 23. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So then, if God is faithful and his steadfast love never changes and his mercies are new every morning, the question looms Why would you lean on your own understanding? Lean on the Lord. You know, there's this often used idiom in our culture today that's a no brainer. So, trust in the Lord. That is a no-brainer. Verse 6. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Now, in Western societies, and more predominantly in Britain, probably not so much today, but in the past, there is a nonverbal act of acknowledgement called tipping the hat. I'm sure you've all seen this. It's a, it's a form of etiquette, a way of acknowledging someone. Joe. Bob, you know, you've seen that, right? But you see, they aren't necessarily wanting to talk to you. In fact, they're probably just hoping that the acknowledgement, being that it's a gesture and a proper display of good manners, that'll suffice, right? They're not really looking for any further encounter. So here's a thoughtful introspection. Is your acknowledgement of God on a Sunday morning like a tip of the hat? Your nod to God, as it were? How much of God are you looking for? Do you hunger for God? Or is it more like tipping the hat? Contrast the tipping of the hat with the reunion of a dear friend. What does that look like? Probably an embrace. Tears of joy. An overflowing of enthusiasm. Let the joy of the Lord fill your thoughts and let us delight in Him. More. That's the kind of acknowledgement that God wants. Now, here's another uh, acknowledgement act that you may have seen. You know, very often uh, at a sports game after a score or a win, you know, the athlete, like, points to the sky. Sometimes it's like, you know. It's a gesture, an acknowledgement of God. But I think there's a much greater meaning to our text I think it's much more than this. That's not to say that pointing to the sky and acknowledging God's hand in your life is it's not a good thing. Of course it is. Provided that there's much more. We should acknowledge God in all our achievements. But this is not enough. The text says, in all your ways, acknowledge Him. That's everything. Nothing left out, right? What does all mean? All means all. So, if that's the case, would it not also mean that when troubles come and sorrow fills our hearts and disappointment swallows our joy, that we must acknowledge Him in these ways as well? Can you point your fingers to the sky when you're in your greatest pain? In all your ways, this is is total commitment, complete submission all in, cannot be half-hearted. If we are to acknowledge him in all our ways, does it it also not make sense that we must know and understand all of his ways, That that he graciously provided for us in his word? You see, the thoughts that we think about become our next actions. So then what should we fill our minds with so that our thoughts will be filled with praise and glorifying of God? Just ruminate on that. And if we were to make God the ultimate arbiter of our life, we must understand this truth, that we are not our own, for we were bought with a price. We belong to him, and he's in fellowship with us, and we must let him have his way. And what is his way? And what will he do? Well, let's go back to the text. And he will make straight your paths. So let me see here. All those pesky problems and obstacles that come with life, he's going to move them out of the way for me and make a smooth, straight path. Downhill with a tailwind, right? Wrong. Not at all. That's not the meaning of this verse. So, what then is the meaning of this verse? Well, let's see. We are prone to wander. Like lost sheep, we wander into crooked paths. When we submit to him, he cuts straight. He dissects correctly. He rightly divides. And he creates the pattern for our lives. And the path that we are to walk. He's the grand weaver. The straight path is the right path. The straight path is the path that will conform us to the image of his son. Do you realize that each one of us has a pattern for our lives? We are all uniquely made and our pattern has been crafted and designed by the Grand Weaver. And he sees what we can't. And What does he say he will do for us? Look at Isaiah 42, 16. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. Matthew Henry made this comment, those who put themselves under divine guidance will always have the benefit of it. Another very famous passage of Scripture in Romans Along this line, it's in Romans 8, 28 through 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So then we must fully and completely submit to God and throw up our hands in total surrender and all things will work together for our good. What will bring us joy will not be our circumstances. Our circumstances will just be what they are. Joy is what we will find because we'll be in relationship with Christ. In our Bible study group we've been going through the book of Genesis I've been struck by the clear and obvious ordering, moving, clearing the way, and making straight the paths of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Furthermore, there's a a fantastic narrative on Jacob's son, Joseph. Joseph is cruelly sold into slavery to the Egyptians, then later falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and sent to prison. God didn't make an easy path for Joseph but he did make a straight path. Joseph later graciously tells his brothers in Genesis 50, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, because we have the word of God, he has graciously allowed us to peek into their lives and see his hand making their paths straight. And with hindsight, we can see clearly how God has worked in our own lives, moving and shaping. And yet so often, we wander into desert waste places, hungry, thirsty, and soul-fainted. Listen to the words of this psalm. See if you don't see a little of yourself in here. Psalm 107, 4 through 16. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way, till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He satisfies the longing soul. And the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bond their bonds apart let them thank the lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron soak that in brothers and sisters we have a great and mighty god i just love the imagery here for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron An awesome God. Brothers and sisters, in closing, I would like to just leave a few words from a a favorite of mine. He's an evangelist, a a preacher, and a poet. His life was cut short in his early 40s due to an illness, but he loved and trusted God. His name is Oswald Chambers. He made this statement. I think it's worth passing along. He said, It took me a long while to realize That God has no respect for anything I bring him. All he wants from me is unconditional surrender. I'll just end with a a poem that he wrote. It's real short. Um, It's called, Strive to Enter In at the Straight Gate. Cut it off. My heart is bleeding. And my spirit's wrung with pain. Yet I hear my Jesus pleading, cut it off or all is vain. So I've stopped my ears in terror, lest self-pity makes me quell. Lest at last I take the error and God's purpose thwart and fail. I am bowed to death in sadness, for the pain is all too great. But the dear Lord must find pleasure in the way he maketh straight. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for this time together in your word. Thank you that we can contemplate on your greatness and that we can trust in you. You are a refuge for us. And in this day and age when we see trust just disappearing among other people and they're they're in panic and fear, Lord, we know, we know that we can trust you. Grant, Lord, that you will give us what it takes, equip us well, and give us greater faith to trust in your promises and to trust in your word and your way. Let us always remember this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.